0: And we're going to keep going through the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, you're, you're invited to turn to Romans chapter 12. And as you do so, you know, uh, Pastor Carter's focus through this whole series has been helping us get a sense of the forest. The big picture of the argument of Romans. Because Romans is one of those books in the Bible that uh, every book is unique. And in Romans, Paul is presenting a very tight, very well-organized argument, apologetic, for the gospel. And why the gospel alone is the power to save. So as we turn here to Romans chapter 12, which is uh, in the book, a significant turning point in the letter. I want to take so, a brief moment just to go back through and say, well, where have we been? But before I do that, let me also uh, go to the bulletin and, and uh, please follow after me uh, to pray. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. So yes, the the Romans is about the gospel. In Romans 1, 16, 17, the Apostle Paul said, The gospel alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. Then the Apostle Paul goes to Romans chapter 1 through, through chapter 3, verse 20, to explain that all people, Jews and Greeks alike, need the gospel. That all, whether outside the law or under the law, every human being stands condemned on account of their sin. So Paul explains that everyone is condemned. Everyone needs the gospel. And then in 321 to the end of chapter 3, he then gives us the gospel. What is the gospel? The God, God in the form of his son has come to earth and has dwelt among us and offered his body as a propitiation for our sins. And that through him, we can now receive righteousness. We can be declared righteous. That God through uh, the gospel, through what He has done through Christ, that we can be justified and he the justifier. So he tells us what the gospel is. And then in Romans chapter four, he then answers the question uh, uh, for the Jew, well then um, what about the Jews and what about Abraham? And he says that the gospel, what God has done through Jesus it, it does not contradict the Abrahamic covenant, that it's the fulfillment of it. And he, and he explains from the Jewish perspective how Jesus and the gospel is consistent with God's covenant promises in the Old Testament and with Abraham in particular. Then in Romans chapter 5, he then goes on to expound all the great things that we as believers now receive because of the gospel. We've been united to Christ. We stand justified. We stand in the grace of God. And he goes on to explain from a cosmic perspective how Jesus has undone the curse of Satan. How he is the second Adam and how through his perfect righteous obedience to the law, we now stand on account of him and our union with him. We now stand perfectly righteous before God and nothing we do can take that away. And then in Romans chapter 6, he answers the question, well then, if that's the gospel, well then, where's their obedience? If that's the gospel, if your gospel is that we're saved by grace through faith on account of Christ, then what right do you have to say, well, just go live however you want to live? And Paul answers that question. He says, don't you understand that the gospel, in uniting us to Christ, our old self is crucified with him. And we are raised in newness of life, united together with Christ. And so, therefore... We have the power to do what the Jews long to do, which is to live righteous lives before God. And in Romans 6, he even says to them, present your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness before God. You are no longer slaves to sin, but you are slaves to the grace of God. So in Romans 6, he answers the question how the gospel empowers those who believe in the united Christ to live righteous lives before God in newness of life. And then in Romans 7, he says, well, what about the law? Well, doesn't the law give that? And Paul answers the question convincingly, as Pastor Carter preached on. No, it does not. Under the law and the law alone, we all stand condemned. And no matter how hard we try to follow the law, it just exposes how far far how how far we fall short of doing so. So at the end of 7, he says, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from the body of this death? And then in Romans eight, he then expounds how the gospel in uniting us to Christ it, uh, it gives us the Holy Spirit, and we now um, have we are now not under condemnation, but we have the power of the Spirit within us, empowering us to live righteous lives as we walk in step with the Spirit, with our minds set upon the Spirit. We are given incredible, uh, uh, the incredible power that the Jew alone under the law never had, which is the Spirit of God animating us, giving us that foretaste of heaven, the new life, and that nothing. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then Romans 9 through 11, he says, well, well, what about the Jew? Where does the Jew stand? If this is the gospel. Then why are so many of God's own people from Old Testament times rejecting it? And he goes on to explain, well, this is actually consistent with all of God's covenant dealings. That God has always had his elect. That um, Not all Israel, the nation of Israel, is Israel. The people of the elect who believe in God and who follow him. And then, of course, he goes through a very dense and, um, and uh, very robust recount of Israelites' own history to show that, as we see in our own scriptures, that God himself has always acted in this manner. And then in Romans 10 and 11, he then explains from a human perspective why so many Jews have rejected the gospel. He says it's because they've sought a righteousness of their own, not the righteousness of God. But then he lays out this promise that, that uh, the, the, the covenant promises to Israel are not gone. That God has not forsaken Israel. And Paul himself, as an Israelite, is living testimony to that. That the elect within Israel are being saved today, in Paul's day and today, just as they have been throughout history. So all of that, Paul then wraps up and he begins chapter 12 with, as, as Tom said, Therefore, I exhort you all, on account of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first thing I want you to see here is that this, um, this therefore that comes at the beginning is, uh, which is, therefore I exhort you on account of the mercies of God that this connects right into what he's been saying in chapter 11 of Romans. If, if you want to go back there, he says, uh, beginning in verse 28, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as we, He's talking about the, the Israelites. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to, to, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And then verse 32 is a clincher. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So when he says here in 12, 1, therefore uh, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he is encapsulating all of God's saving acts, under, uh, subsuming them under the mercy of God. All of God's saving acts from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, when God did not kill them on the spot, but He clothed them and He gave them the promise that one day Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And He He bore with their offspring. And He, if you read Genesis and you read the Old Testament, God bore with the people of Israel as they as they were hard-hearted and as they had um, as they had their people who believed with so many who didn't. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God bearing with His people, not forsaking them renewing the covenant with them, all of that is under the mercy of God. And here in Romans, as Paul has been recounting how uh, from Romans 1, the, the world has rejected him and people live in sin and God sent his son and God, what has God has done in his son, all of that is assumed under the mercy of God. What is mercy? Well, one simple definition is, it is a display of compassion or concern over another's misfortune. That's putting it nicely, because it's not just like I stumbled on the curb and scraped my knee and I need you to help me up. The mercy of God is such that when he ought to be repulsed by our sin, when he ought to reject us, when he has every right to condemn us, every rational, holy thought in God's mind is right to condemn us and to judge us, God himself turned to us in love. Turn to us in compassion. That is what the mercy of God here means. That when you go back and you look at Romans 1 and and follow through Romans 3, when, when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been displayed. The righteousness of God for everyone who believes. That is the display of the mercy of God when he sent his son to die for us. So when he says, I appeal to you by the mercies, on account of the mercies of God. And I do want to say here that in the ESV, the, the by the mercies is misleading, I think. The, the, the Greek there uh, is better understood as on account of the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God. And you see, this is important because I would suggest to you this. Paul sets up here a pendulum for understanding the Christian life. I think it goes back and forth. A pendulum for understanding the Christian life. You see, what Paul says, he says, on account of the mercies of God, he's setting up for us a a framework for understanding how how to frame or characterize Christian obedience. And it goes like this. The degree to which a believer pursues a transformed life, which we'll talk about in a minute, inwardly and outwardly is directly correlated to the degree which that believer recognizes that it is by the mercy of God that they have been saved. To the degree that you and I or anybody believes and really recognizes that we're saved by the mercy of God will translate into a transformed life. The failure of a proclaiming believer not to do as Paul is now exhorting us to do is not a failure of that person's own moral quality. It doesn't mean it's not a failure that they're well. They're I'm more moral because I'm doing it, and that person's less moral because they're not doing it. It's not a failure of their moral quality. It's not a failure of their economic condition, poor or rich. It's not a failure of their mental quality, not a failure of their of their education of their political situation, not a failure of their sex, whether male or female, not a failure of their discipline, whether they're disciplined or not, not a failure of their personality, whether they're they're, they're like this or like that. It is a failure to grapple with and genuinely recognize that they have been saved by mercy. Because when you recognize you've been saved by mercy, it tells you two things. It tells you, first of all, a lot about yourself And it tells you a lot about God. When you recognize that we've been saved by mercy, on account of mercy, it says, I have no claim upon God. I have no right upon God. There is nothing good in me, in my sinful state, that is lovely, that is deserving of salvation. There is nothing about me or my life that can claim salvation on my own. That's what it means to be saved by the mercy of God. It is like the the, um, you know, the, the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, when the guy's on the side of the road, he is utterly and totally helpless. It is only on account of that man stopping, stooping down to take him up, put him on his donkey, and take him to a, to a, 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 a hotel to, to get help, that he lives. He did nothing. He merely received that man's mercy. You and I, nothing in us, accounts for what God has done. We deserve hell. So when Paul says here that, um, when he says, on account of the mercies of God, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, that gives us a huge framework for understanding ourselves and then for understanding God. Because now once we realize that there's nothing about us, then we realize that it is all about the love of God. You see, the irony is when you look to yourself as having some basis or rationale for why God saved you, what you're actually doing is you're robbing God not only of His glory, but of His love. And therefore, you're cheapening your own experience of God in your life. Because when you realize how amazing it is that He does love you, that he has saved you, that he has sent his son for you, not because of you, but because of his love, then you go, wow, now I know that nothing I do will separate me from that love. As Paul said in chapter three, or sorry, chapter five, if he loved me when I was ungodly, how much more so will he now love me that I'm his child? So when you recognize that it's on account of the mercy of God that you now stand before God. It transforms, or it should say, it informs the way you, you view yourself and the way you view God, and everything else that He's going to say about the Christian life in the next few chapters starts with recognizing that we are saved on account of the mercy of God. Back in uh, Exodus thirty-three, chapter nine—sorry, uh, chapter thirty-three, verse nineteen. God Himself. When Moses pleased to see the glory of God, God's glory, uh, uh, God tells him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before before you my name. This is God speaking. I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon, upon whom I will show mercy. The very name of God revealed to Moses, God himself says, is tied to the fact that he is free in showing grace to whom he will show grace and mercy to whom he will show mercy. We, brothers and sisters, will spend all eternity. God himself has orchestrated history such that in the new heavens and new earth, all creation, including us, will exalt God for his mercy day in and and day out to the praise of His glory. Saved by the mercy of God. Paul says, On account of the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I do, again, want to speak here to the ESV. It's a little confusing. In the Greek, what, what, what is being said is, Offer your bodies as a sacrifice living, holy, and pleasing to God. It's a minor note, but in the ESV it says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Actually, living, holy, and pleasing are all uh, modifiers of the sacrifice all going together. And what does, this mean? What does it mean by this? This is, this is language that we're not too familiar with in our day. It would have been very familiar to a Jew who, offering sacrifices, was at the center of their worship. And we know, however, that Jesus himself is the final sacrifice. So what does he mean when he says, Offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living holy and pleasing to God? Well, several things. First, first and foremost, we know he does not mean as a, as a, as a, uh, as, as for sin. He doesn't say that. Um, we are not offering our lives or our bodies to make penance for our sin. Jesus himself is the full and complete sacrifice. He's using the language of sacrifice for several reasons. Mostly, I would suggest this. He wants the believer to recognize God's claim over all of their life. They, as image bearers of God, now renewed in the image of Christ, we, all of our lives, are lived to the glory of God. We belong to God. So that's the initial reason why I think Paul uses this word sacrifice, is that he wants to acknowledge the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they, they belong to God. That's why he gets angry when they're withheld. These sacrifices, when they're brought before God, God, in a sense, owns those sacrifices. They are his. So when he says here, you are a sacrifice, he's telling you and me, our identity now is at the base level is we belong to God. We'll say here more in a minute when he talks about being holy. But then secondly, this word sacrifice, it communicates to you and to me that life itself, as Jesus himself said, being a Christian means picking up your cross and following after him. There's no way to deny the association of death with a sacrifice, of an offering up, a giving away And throughout the rest of these chapters on the practical Christian living, the fundamental paradigm there is that you and I are called to follow in the likeness of Christ, to be loving others, other-oriented, and to to give our lives in service to God by serving others. Which is why in verse 3, the next thing he says, he says, I exhort you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. His very first application is humility. So sacrificial language here communicates, first of all, that you and I belong to God. We are His. And secondly, that the call to the Christian life is to live in service to God by serving one another in the church and in the community. But Paul says we are a sacrifice living, holy, and pleasing to God. The word living here simply means that it's an ongoing, continual thing. Contrary to sacrifice, that you killed it and that was it, we are living sacrifices in the sense that day in and day out, we give our lives to God as a sacrificial offering. That's what that means. We give our lives to God as a sacrificial offering day in and day out. When he says holy, he means two things. Well, more, but at least two things. One As I've already mentioned, holiness means being set apart unto God. So when he says to us, we are holy sacrifices, he means God has set us apart. In the Old Testament, you were a shepherd, you had lots of sheep. You would take one out, and that would be the sacrifice. It would be set apart, made holy unto God. Brothers and sisters, when God saved us, he didn't just save us out us out of sin. He saved us unto himself. We have been set apart, called apart, and we are now holy. But then the word holy also has an ethical force, doesn't it? That means that our lives now have an ethical mission behind them. When, God, when Paul says that we are a holy sacrifice, he's first of all denoting the indicative We've been set apart for God. But then also the exhortation out of that is that we now, our lives, have an ethical mission. The choices we make, the things we do, have an ethical mission, meaning we have a compulsion to pursue holiness in our lives. So living holy and pleasing to God. The language of pleasing to God, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, ought to sound familiar. All throughout the, the uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places, God talks about sacrifices and the aroma as being pleasing to himself. He says, for example, in, in uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 18, "...present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams." They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, what what is so amazing is how Paul takes that language of the temple and applies it to your life. What he is saying here with this pleasing to the Lord is that your life lived toward God is a pleasing aroma to God. Do you think about that? Or do you think, oh no, like all all you focus on is how far you fall short, or how messed up you are, how far, how much you need to do to please God? Or do you think when God sees you living in mundane obedience to Him, that is a pleasing aroma to God? Do you think about that? That's what Paul is saying here: is that your life, not you don't have to go be an amazing Charles Spurgeon preacher, you don't have to be Hudson Taylor. You don't have to come up with some amazing scientific invention. You don't have to be a political force. Your life lived as a sacrifice to God is a pleasing aroma to him. He delights in the way you live your life to him. So he says, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. Which is your, uh, the ESV says, spiritual worship. The word there is logicane. You might notice the word logic in there. Um, commentators debate exactly what, what, you know, how to interpret this because they want to shy away from several wrong things, but the most basic uh, way to interpret that word is reasonable, as your reasonable worship. And what I would suggest to you here is when he says this, go back to Romans 1. In, Roman 1, in Romans 1, Paul paints a picture of the fallen person is living in utter futility. He says their hearts are darkened and their minds are futile and their bodies have been given over to corruption. And in, in Romans 1, he paints such a devastating picture of humanity and he says this, God what? He handed them over to their desires. So the, 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 the paradigm going on there is what Paul is saying is that even in the things that they desire, those are actually judgment from God. It would be like if I woke up tomorrow morning and I thought poop tasted delicious. Yes, but that's what, he, that's what Paul's saying is that we wake up thinking poop tastes amazing and we want more of it and we want more of it and we think we pursue it and we glorify it. It's on our TVs and our billboards and our cell phones. It's everywhere all around us. We think, this is so good and so delicious. I want to have more. And Paul says, Don't you see that the things you want are your judgment? And so in our minds, we live in utter futility. We have been corrupted such that our original design as image bearers of God has been made futile. So when he says here this word reasonable worship, he's saying your mind has been put right. Your brain, your mind, your soul has now been put right so that you can do what we all say in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We can actually do that. We have been renewed. So when he says here your reasonable worship, he's saying to us, we now can do that which we could not do in our sinful state. And finally, this word worship here in this verse, that's an all-inclusive word, and I, I, I will simply say this. Deuteronomy chapter 10 helps us see how this word was understood even in the Old Testament. Moses says to the Israelites, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep His commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, when it says, um, to love him and to serve him, the Lord, sorry, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the same Greek word that Paul uses here for worship. In other words, when he's here, he's talking about worship, to offer our lives as an act of worship. He is saying that you as a believer, me as a believer, our lives are tangibly lived in service to God as an act of worship to God because we are his image bearers as image bearers of God who have been renewed in Christ we are now able to do what we were designed to do that all of our life day in and day out might point up to God and be conducted as an act of worship to put it another way i should be clear here what is what is really stark is he says offer your bodies as living sacrifices your bodies that's a really stark phrase and what it tells us here is that in Paul's mind, the practical way we live our life is all-inclusive. In other words, when Paul uses that word, he is not denying the soul. He's not denying the heart. You know, In our culture, we're very familiar with, I give my heart to God. I give my mind to God. I give my internal feelings to God. And so when Paul says, you're off your bodies, he's not discounting those things. What he's saying is that he knows, I believe, us, and how we are want to sort of see religion as an internal thing a mental thing, a feeling thing. He says, no, 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 religion is all, God is all inclusive. He has claimed your whole life. So he wants your whole life lived in worship to him. And indeed, as as Carter will unfold the next few chapters, it's all gonna be very practical, very concrete, very tangible. It's not go be a loving person, go be a nice person, go be a whatever abstract quality. He's gonna give very concrete instructions for living life in their day-to-day life as a church and in their context as a community. Paul sees the Christian life not just in the abstract, in the mental, or the emotional, but in how we live day to day. And then he says, verse two, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Of course, Uh, This is one of the first verses I memorized as a young Christian because it is so paradigmatic. Because, first of all, what Paul tells us here is that there is a conforming power in the world around us. He wouldn't say that if it wasn't a threat. You don't tell someone not to do something if they can't do it. So when he says to them not to be conformed to this age, which, by the way, the ESC says world, that's okay. The actual word is age, meaning this, this corrupt age that we live in as we wait for the return of Christ. Do not be conformed to this age. That means that even as a believer, there is a potential that we could be conformed. You don't give exhortations that are meaningless. Paul recognizes that there is a spiritual Political and internal compulsion to conform ourselves to the age we live in. He says to them, Do not be conformed to this age. You know, it's like if you have, a, you know, you're making popsicles or cookies and you have a little mold and you pour the batter in and you cook it, you're doing a cake and it comes out and it's in this and that shape. It could be in any shape, but it's in that shape because that's the mold you put it in. The world has a mold it wants, and we are internally compelled in our, fallen, in our fallen sinful nature, which we've, grand scheme, we've gotten rid of, but we still have the old man with us, don't we? Who wants to go back to that. And then we have all kinds of forces around us that are compelling us to, to be conformed to this age. He says, do not be conformed to this age. Um, he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And in Greek there, there's lots of ways in Greek, if you want to get into grammar, that they can use the word, the, the, the idea of but. But do this, but do that. Uh, however, there's a word that they use and they want to really emphasize the contrast. It's Allah, not, has nothing to do with Islam. It's A-L-L-A. But that word, when it's used in Greek, it means they really want to emphasize the contrast. It'd be like I stomp my foot on the ground and say, but do this. So do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I want to tell you just a brief moment here. I think we need to pause because this sounds so new agey in our culture, doesn't it? I could go to the gym and I could see all about transforming and renewing your mind. How is this a, a, a particular Christian exhortation? Well, first and foremost, um, renew there is not some new agey concept. You have to remember, Paul here, that new, the, and if you, uh, in the English, if you pull out the re and the ol, you get the word new. And that's actual, literal, redemptive history. He's not talking about some new agey thing. He's talking about you have been renewed, like actual. You've been made like Christ. Romans 6. We've been crucified with Christ, and we've been united with him, and we been raised in newness of life. That new here is a very real thing. You are a new, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation in Christ. Don't minimize that word renewal here. He's being literal. He's being literal. You have a new mind. You could not follow Christ in your old mind. You have a new mind. And I would suggest to you that... um, it, it's, it's all imbued with what he's already said in Romans chapter eight. Therefore, the second time I'm not going to read today, but Romans eight is all about the newness of the Christian life that didn't even happen in the Old Testament. The newness of walking with the Holy Spirit inside you, the newness of union with Him, the newness of all that God has done that we now have. But I also want to include. I do. I do want to include here a lengthy quote from. It's, it's from a book by J.A. Packer who's actually quoting John Owen. because I think they do, do so well to talk about what it means uh, here to, to walk, to pursue the, be transformed by, by the renewal of our minds. Packer says, how should we define he's talking about holiness, because that's ultimately what, what, what Paul's calling us to. How should we define the believer's holiness? The holiness of a holy man, we may say, is the distinctive quality of his living, viewed both as the expression of his being set apart for God and as the outworking of his inward renewal by God's grace. With rumbling rumbling rhetoric, the Puritan John Owen explicates this by defining sanctification as the work of the Christian's God, transforming uh, transforming him and holiness as the lifestyle of the person being transformed. So, I have, more, I have more there, but I'll, I'll stop there. What he's saying there is that um, holiness, and including the renewal of your mind, is both the work of God and our work. And they happen together. So, when Paul says here, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, I want to emphasize he's not, if, especially if he ties into Romans 8 and all the rest of, of Scripture uh, of this letter, he's not saying, you on your own go do this. He's saying, in Romans 8, God has given you His Spirit. Now in light of your spirit, go and pursue transformation by the renewal of your mind. God is at work in you and you are called to respond to God's work by renewing your mind. Alright. So renewal of your mind. But I want to say something else. The verb that he uses here, the, word, the verb, uh, it's actually metamorphosis. Well, Uh, It's where we get the word uh, metamorphosis. It's metamorpho in Greek. When he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is metamorpho in Greek. Where we get the word metamorphosis. The verb describes an inward change in fundamental character or conduct. What that means is, Paul is not here simply telling us to adopt a new set of ideas. Christianity is not saying, okay, here's some new ideas, just go and adopt them. He's not saying just go adopt a new set of morals. He's he's saying to them, God has claimed all of you, now you give all of your life, your whole person, over to God, and in doing so, your whole person will be transformed. The Christian life is not simply one of morality or philosophy or anything else. It is at its heart, the power of God transforming us and we, in cooperation with God, being transformed. And then he closes with this. He says, why are we to do that? He says, in a very practical way, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. In multiple letters, Paul has this kind of exhortation, or this goal in mind, I should say, for the believer, that he wants them to know what God's will is for them. Meaning that he doesn't want these believers, uh, whether they're in Colossae or Romans or, or uh, Rome, excuse me, or Corinth, to live in ignorance. He wants them to live such that in their life they 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 are pursuing uh, God's will. They can know God's will and live according with God's will. So he says to these people here, uh, to these Romans, they are to not to be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of their mind. For what reason? so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Notice, he wants them to know what God's will is for them. That's his end goal. So that with the end goal, transformation is not an end in of itself. It's that we might know the will of God. That we might live according to the will of God. Now, just FYI, in Greek, there is no by testing. That is just an insertion in the SV to help us understand what Paul means here, by the in the Greek, with the word discern, because the word um, it, it, it gives us idea of examining something, testing it that you might approve of it. So you know the idea is you, you say you have a dollar bill and you test it and you examine it to know if it's real or not. That's the that's the word here. And what he's saying is as we are living, this is by the way, this is a very very practical exhortation. Don't you all want to know what the will of God is? I certainly do. What he's saying here is that as we pursue transformation via the renewal of our minds in cooperation with the Spirit, in day-to-day life, we're going to be able to, on an ongoing basis, in a mundane way, as, as life is happening, examine the events of our lives, examine the world around us, and in doing so, be able to discern out of all of that what God's will is. Now, I know we all want God just to give us a letter. Saying, could you just tell me what I'm supposed to do? Paul here is saying that the way God works is as we pursue cooperation with the Spirit, growing in holiness, it's like it serves as a compass that guides us along the way. So that as we're constantly making judgments in our lives, little decisions and big decisions, we have a sense inwardly of being able to discern what God's will is. That's pretty critical. It's very, very critical. Paul wants us in our day-to-day lives to be able to discern, to understand, to perceive the will of God, that we might live according to that. And he says, why would we want that? Because God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. So if we want to have a good life, then we're going to live according, try to live according to the will of God. If we want to have a bad life, we'll try to live according to our own will. Or we'll live in ignorance of the will of God. So, if we want a good life, we want to know how we can discern God's will, and because, especially because of this, that it doesn't work according to human rationale. A lot of times, we take our will, our rationale, and we say, okay, that's what God wants me to do. But, but Paul's not saying that. He's saying we want to discern what God's will is, because God's will is fundamentally different from our own. So, for example, God's will might be that contrary to the world, I don't take that promotion, even though it might give me more money and give me more prestige, because I discern that if I take this promotion, it's going to call me to not be able to to be a faithful husband or faithful father. But that's not contrary to the world. If I go by my own judgment, oh, I think I should have that job. I worked hard for that job. I can do it better than the other guys can, so I should have that job. But maybe God's will. But it's not black or white. Because you take another person and maybe they discern no, God does want them to take that job. And they should do it. And, they, and as they do that job, it, it, you know, it's going to be okay. And that's what God wants them to do. There are all kinds of decisions in our lives that are not black or white. And there are all kinds of decisions that it is God's will that leads us in a path that's contrary to the patterns of this age. So how can we live in contrary to the patterns of this age? By discerning the will of God. He says God's will is, per, is good. He says it is pleasing. That means that God's will is pleasing to himself. He wants us to live a life. If we want to live a life pleasing to him, then we live a life that's according to his will. That's what pleases God. And then finally, it is perfect. God's will is, of course, perfect. And if you recall from the end of chapter 11... Paul gives us doxology of praise to God. Who can know the mind of God? Who can search His will? The whole point being that here when he calls us to this this call, it's a call of faith. Knowing that God God has given us a new life and that through that we can discern His will out of faith and trusting in Him. So let me give you a few brief applications. I know I've gone long and I will close. First and foremost, that Paul here sets forth a vision of the Christian life that is non-negotiable. There is no such thing as a Christian who's been saved, who simply puts their practical life up on a shelf It has nothing to do with God. That is so contrary to Paul's vision of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just include the indicatives of what God has done for us. It presents to us a call to then respond to that in obedience as a, as a sacrifice. The, 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 the call of the gospel is to give our lives to God. So if you're here this morning and you've been sitting on the fence and you believe in God, but your life is not being lived in fullness to Him, these verses are for you this morning. That God is saying to you, get up, get out of your complacency and give your life to me in full and complete obedience. And in that you will find delight and joy and blessing. And then secondly, for the believer as we will see, as Carter will go on to talk about, this sets the stage for all kinds of amazing and brilliant and life-changing exhortations that Paul will get into. That I hope you come back and you, and you get to see all that he says here about what it looks like to live life in the body of Christ and in the church and in relation to the government and so on and so forth. And then finally, I do want to say one last thing, which is that all of this, brothers and sisters... Is, is done out of what God has done for us. So obviously, I, I know most of you, and you've been here through all this series, you know the gospel, you believe the gospel, but know that as we pursue the Christian life, we do so out of the power and the grace that is ours fully in Christ. Amen. And to that end, we now come to the table, which is, of course, a perfect,